chapter 40, the end of Exodus. And hear the word of God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put in it the ark of testimony and partition off the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange the things that are to be set in order. And you shall bring in the lampstand and light its lamps. You shall also set the altar of gold for incense before the ark of the testimony and put up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. Then you shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put the water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen at the court gate. And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. And you shall hallow it and all its utensils. And it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar. The altar shall be most holy and you shall anoint the laver and its base and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father that they may minister to me as priests for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did it. And it came to pass in the first day of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was raised up. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put in its bars, and raised up its pillars. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering Of the tent on top of it, as the Lord had commanded Moses, he took the testimony and put it into the ark, inserted the poles through the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses, he put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and he let lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil, and he burned sweet incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle, and he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and he offered up Uh, Upon it burnt offerings and grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water there for washing. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it. Whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting and when they came near the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because of the cl- because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day 
that it was taken up for the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the the message of Exodus now uh, here coming to a close. We ask you that we might uh, give it a proper place in our lives through faithfully hearing now the preaching of this final chapter. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's amazing to think that we have here reached the end of uh, Exodus. I, I can't remember exactly when it was that we began our study of the Old Testament beginning in Genesis, but it's been uh, quite some time. Uh, if you remember, I've spoken of uh, Exodus as, as the Hebrews of the Old Testament, and that's, that's what we have here. Uh, so uh, it was nice for a while to, to actually be preaching Hebrews in the morning and Exodus in the evening. They really fit well together. But it's been a precious book uh, to preach and to study. And uh, it's, it's full of so many highlights uh, that, that stay with you as a Christian and that you look forward to reading in your yearly uh, Bible reading. Many of you using uh, McShane will very shortly be reading them again. But of all the highlights, who can deny that chapter 40 is, is among uh, one of the best in this book full of highlights? Uh, let me uh, give you the contents of what we have here and, uh, and then describe the significance of it. In verse 1, we have the Lord's command. It begins with the Lord's command. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, that's verse 1. And really, I don't think, given our study of the Old Testament, and indeed, for that matter, of the New Testament, that we can be surprised to see that uh, God's word comes first. There is a priority in terms of importance, but also in terms of time of the Lord's word. The, the, the speech of the Lord is what gets things going. So you see that at the beginning of creation, that God spoke, and so it was. You also see at the beginning of Moses' ministry, or of Abraham's uh, life as a pilgrim began with the Lord speaking. It isn't surprising then to find that uh, the, the tabernacle being constructed, its materials having been made, and by constructed I mean just put together and put in place, it begins, oh and let me also say the ministry that began in the tabernacle, all of that begins only once God has spoken. And so there wasn't a single detail about the tabernacle that man sought or was allowed to do on his own. And this becomes, in many ways, this point or this principle, a model or a picture of the Christian life. That uh, when the Lord speaks, so we act. And it's the Lord's speech that gets things going in our lives. Whether it's, uh, whether it's in uh, our conversion or whether it's just in the day-to-day living. The, the, the preaching and the word of God is the spur and the stimulus. That doesn't mean, in speaking of the Christian life in this way, that we wait for a word from the Lord before we act. You ought to remember that in, those, in these days, they had no scripture. And so God spoke to them directly, or else through his prophets like Moses. But we have the word of God before us in scripture, and his will has been made known. In other words, you don't have to wait for it to be made known. It's already been made known. And so we need not wonder about the ways or the times of our duty. All has been made clear. And seeing that God has spoken, all that is left for us to do is to read and to understand and then to obey. We see next in verse 2 the significance of the first day. 
On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. It's another detail that really you should pause and wonder about. What is the Lord saying here? Well, he's pointing, obviously, for one thing, to a new beginning. As with the creation on the first day, or with the resurrection of Jesus on the first day, one of the things that Scripture must deeply impress upon you is the importance of time. This is something that stands out in Genesis chapter 1. And it isn't something that God ever forgets about. The importance of time. Time is something that God has created. It's a created thing. It is something Augustine says in his confessions that is difficult to understand. And yet we are all the time experiencing time. We are living on the plane or the spectrum of time because God has placed us there. And so time is a created thing exists under God's lordship and his sovereign direction as much as anything else. Perhaps another way to make this point is that there will be no time in heaven, just one eternal present. And so time is something that belongs to the created and not to the eternal. Indeed, the word eternal itself conveys the absence of time or the transcendence of time. And yet, to be bound to this earth that the Lord has created is to be bound to time. And that places us within a realm which God has created for his own glory. And that is why we find God dictating the days and the seasons of our lives, whether by providence or or by prescription in his word. Time is something we also read that is to be redeemed, Paul tells us. It is to be used always for his glory. We ought not to squander it. And the way that we order our days, I mean our time, is a reflection of how much we have devoted ourselves to him. How much time do we give to the Lord? And do we let him order our days? Is one day in seven, for instance, too much to give him? For many Christians it is. But we also see the value of the turning of a year. A new year isn't to be squandered. That's what the Lord is saying. It's an opportunity for reflection and new commitments and new beginnings. The world, of course, makes a mockery of this notion with the whole idea of New Year's resolutions. And yet here I would notice that this is actually something that is thoroughly biblical, rightly understood, which is one of the reasons, by the way, that I have made the practice, at least for the last two years, of a New Year's sermon. It's also why we have the congregational meeting at the beginning of the year. What we're doing is reflecting upon uh, the turning of the year and what that might mean for us, what it is, at least insofar as we are concerned, we might uh, devote to the Lord. Matthew Henry says, when a new year begins, we should think of serving God more and better than we did the year before. In other words, it isn't that men make a New Year's resolution that makes it so tragical or even so comical. It is rather that men didn't think at the turn of the year to devote themselves to the Lord. That's the tragedy. And here is one of the obvious ways that we are able to outshine the world in its failed effort. We're also able to see in what the Lord tells them here in verse 2 
that they ought not to wait to construct the tabernacle. And they ought not to wait to use it or to put it to use. Having constructed a tabernacle or a tent, a portable home for the Lord and a place of ministry for the priests, he tells them to get to work. It was, uh, or to put it to use. It was a place of worship fit for pilgrims. And even though they were to journey to the promised land, not very far from here, and we can imagine that they had their hearts set on that promised land. And they had their hearts set on a settled existence there. God says, worship me here in the wilderness now. Don't wait. And so we learn that the perfect and the best time for obedience is now. It is today. As soon as God speaks, though we find ourselves in a wilderness, outside of the promised land, it's time to obey. And to devote ourselves to his worship as best we can. The instructions themselves, which begin in verse 13 and take us through verse 15, and then which are mirrored in verses 17 through 33. We have the instructions and then we have the fulfillment of those instructions. You might remember in the, in the 20s of Exodus we had the instructions and then in the chapters leading up to this we've had the fulfillment. Well, here we have both in the same chapter the Lord tells him how to do it and then we read he does it. And as we read this we're taken through once more uh, the main features of the tabernacle. And we, emo- we imagine Moses placing each thing in its place uh, as he does so. And I'll just briefly list those things. We don't need to consider the significance of them. We've done that many times already. The first thing he's told to do is to set up the tent, verse 2, which we later find him doing in verses uh, 17 through 19. He is then to place the ark in its place, verse 3, that is in the inner room, and place the testimony within the ark, and the mercy seat above it, and the cherubim on its two sides, verse 20. He is then to partition the inner room with a veil, verse 3, which he later does in verse 21. The inner room with the ark. In the outer room, he was to set up a table and to place the bread upon it. The showbread, verses 4 and then 22 and 23. And then on the other side of the room, a lampstand. And he was to light the lampstand. The altar of incense was to be placed in the middle just before the veil. In the outer room. And then he was to place uh, an outer veil or a second veil, which we read of in verse 5. That would be the door to the outer room and the way to enter the tent from the outside. Outside of that, in the middle of the court, some ways from the door, though in front of it, was to be the altar of burnt offering, verse 6, which he set up in verse 29 and performed offerings there. There was also to be uh, the bronze laver, which was to be in between, though set off to the side, the altar and the first veil which Moses put water in and he he washed his hands and his feet. The court and the outer wall was then set up, which surrounded all of that, verse 8. And then we read about the anointing, the tabernacle with oil, verses 9 and 11 through 11, and the anointing and clothing of the priests at the door, verses 12 through 15. Those verses, verses 9 through 15, do not have a corresponding section in Exodus 40. They were apparently done later. The key verses are verse uh, 16 and verse 33. Thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Well, verses 3 through 15 give the instructions. Verses 17 through 33 
we see that he followed through. He did everything. Uh, the other key verse is verse 33 at the end. So Moses finished the work. And oh, that the, the same might be said of us. That we do all the Lord commands us and that we finished. What I want to notice about Moses constructing the tabernacle is especially the way in which he is here acting as a priest. It's one of the more surprising things. Perhaps we were not prepared for it. Although I think if we are familiar with Moses' ministry in Exodus, perhaps we would not be so surprised. It isn't just that he's overseeing the construction. He is actually ministering as a priest along the way. And that is the undeniable significance of what we read in verses 17 through 33. It is not just his faithfulness, which Hebrews chapter 3 underscores, and we see that here. He was faithful in all that the Lord commanded him as as a head over the, the old covenant. But it was the way as the head of that covenant he performed the first priestly functions. And so, in many ways, with respect to the tabernacle, we could say Moses was the first priest. I don't think that's the way we are accustomed to thinking of it. I think that we would perhaps begin with Aaron and his sons. And yet, we find it is Moses acting first as a priest and not Aaron. And so I would call Moses' priesthood a prototype or a proto-priesthood. We read in uh, Numbers, or excuse me, in uh, Psalm 99, verse 6, that Moses was numbered among the priests, which really I do not find surprising at all, because if you think of the two primary activities of the priest, uh, which you should easily be able to tell me if I were to ask you from Hebrews, the priest is to offer and he is to intercede. Well, admittedly, we haven't seen him offering yet, but we've certainly seen him interceding time and again. And in that function, he is not operating as a priest, uh, as a prophet, excuse me, which is how we typically think of Moses, but he's operating as a priest on behalf of Israel. This is something we've noticed again and again, appearing in the presence of God on behalf of the people to intercede for them. And so to find him setting up the tabernacle and all of its furniture and then immediately putting each of those things to use, putting water in the laver and, and washing his hands, putting the bread of the showbread on the table, lighting the altar of the incense, the incense on the altar, offering on the burnt altar, everything uh, that he set up, he used. We see him acting as a priest. That is not surprising. Moses was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. He, re- he resembled Jesus as the head of a covenant and thus holding multiple offices at once. At, f- uh, at times we find he's like a king ruling Israel. Most of the time, admittedly, we find he is the prophet, the great prophet of God. But having said that, we are not surprised to find him holding and carrying out priestly functions as well. We are not sup- surprised to find the honor given to him in performing the first priestly functions. The priest is one, again, who intercedes, but he also sacrifices. And so in doing this, he was acting true to his office. He was, you might say, setting a pattern or a model for the other priests to follow. And he was also encouraging them. He was setting these things up and saying, now see here, I want you to use them. These things were intended to be used, not to be admired. Go ahead and wash your hands in the laver. Go ahead and... Set up the incense and the bread and so on. Again, the tabernacle and its its stuff were not for show but for use. 
Let us not be afraid to use the things that God has made to be used and to use them as soon as we can. But the greatest point that we notice is found in verse 34. And really, verse 34 to the end is what makes Exodus chapter 40 such a wonderful chapter. It is the way Exodus concludes for all of the details that we have concerning the construction of the tabernacle, Israel being brought out of Egypt, we find that the tabernacle is set up and that the glory of the Lord which resided in the cloud rushes into the tabernacle. It is an amazing, uh, it's an amazing picture. And it is the most appropriate ending for this book of Exodus. Because, uh, well, I would just entitle this point, and this is the, ti- the title of the sermon, The Glory of God in the Tabernacle. The glory of God is the great emphasis of Exodus. Again and again we see that the religious experience of the Israelites in the wilderness was one of beholding the glory of God. That's how Moses was confronted with the Lord in Exodus chapter 3. It's what Moses asked the Lord to show him in Exodus 33. Show me your glory. If you read the book of Exodus with any amount of attention to detail, you will see the glory of God is the great thing. Of course it would end in this way and with this emphasis. This was, let us see, the glory of God, a revelation that God was making of himself. It was not something that man was discovering by his own ingenuity. God was making known about himself through revelation to the people, his glory. His glory was seen in delivering the people, so it was also seen in the tabernacle which was built. But The question which we might ask is, what does the glory of God mean? It's obviously more than the sight of the fire and the sound of rushing wind, although his glory is often associated with those things as here, because those things have a way of conveying the basic idea, which is that God is an awe-inspiring being, that he is altogether greater than us. And in every way that, uh, every way that his greatness shines through to us, his glory appears to us as something uh, to behold and to wonder at. Like uh, so many things, it is better to behold and to admire than it is to try to describe it. Like the rays of the sun, Thomas Watson says. I cannot quite describe them to you, but if only you would look and see for yourself, then you would understand the warmth and the glory and the splendor of the sun. The glory of God is like that. It is better uh, to behold and to experience than to describe. And certainly that is not merely the emphasis of Exodus, but in reality, it captures the emphasis of the whole Bible. And thus the whole of Reformed theology, which is nothing but a biblical theology. What is the great thing that God wants us to see in the Bible? Is it not his glory, beloved? His greatness? And is that not the one great thing that appears in all of the pages of Scripture? The glory of God. We do not need today a fire and a tabernacle. We need merely to read these pages of the Bible. And in that Bible we will find a continual display and revelation of the glory of God. Beyond that, the whole of the world he has made to declare the same thing, namely the glory of God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. That is all of the earth that he has made. But above all, this is what appears in the person of Jesus Christ. 
In him, the disciples we read in John's prologue, beheld his glory. Not merely at the transfiguration, but merely in beholding him. The whole of his life was a continual display of his glory. The rays of his divine nature shone through his person, though clothed in the weakness of his flesh. Here was God indeed, they realized. And what this means is that in him they beheld the glory of God's nature. But look particularly at this incident. What do we notice about God's glory here? Well, for one thing, we notice the glory of his presence. It was the fact that the Lord made the tabernacle his abode or his dwelling. And so we read not just that God inhabited the tent, but that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle specifically. And really to speak of one is to speak of the other. For just as when Christ appeared and tabernacled among us, it's the same word. He dwelt among us or he tabernacled among us. Again, it was his glory that the disciples beheld and that they noticed about him as he dwelt among among them. Only in the case of the tent... While Christ draws us to himself, concealing uh, in a measure his glory that we might draw near. Here it was God's glory, actually we read, that made it impossible for even Moses to draw near. Moses of all people, who dwelt in that lesser tent, you remember, and beheld the glory of God. So much so, so that his face shone. And yet, even here this one, Moses, was unable to draw near. And to dwell in the presence of God's glory. It was too great even for him. And does that not give you some sense. Of what it means to, uh, what it means to speak of God's glory. It is the power and the majesty of his being. It is the greatness of his power. Who can behold it? Again to use Watson's language. It is like the sun. Which is impossible to look upon. Uh, for more than just a glance without being blinded by it. Another thing that we can say about the glory of God as it inhabited the tabernacle was that it consecrated and it blessed the tabernacle, especially as that glory and that glorious presence sat enthroned upon the mercy seat. And there the Lord ruled the people. There the Lord sanctified the people. And there the Lord taught the people. What the Lord was doing as he rushed in to the tabernacle was to own it as his own. Something which belonged to him. Something which was sacred in his own eyes. And, and really this had two sides to it as we've seen again and again. For one thing, it was a glory that was veiled. We realized that immediately. And even Moses was cut off from the presence of the glory of God. And yet, on the other hand, if we see uh, things progress and unfold in the coming chapters in Leviticus, we realize that it was a glory that the high priest was able to behold once a year. It's difficult to imagine what this meant for him. And yet, by his entrance into the inner room, the Lord was indicating to the people that his grace was available in the person of the priest. Person of the priest, I mean. Yes, in this limited way, but even then, it was available. Grace to help in time of need. As the Lord, again, sat enthroned upon the mercy street, mercy seat. And all uh, these other 600 and 
364 days of the year. All the lesser ministry that occurred outside that room was blessed and effective because grace flowed out to them from the mercy seat. And so there was a measure of grace that was available even in the old covenant. Not just for holiness then, but for grace. The glory of God was also for comfort and for guidance, especially for guidance. For his glory also appeared in the cloud. And as it rose from the tent and took a new direction, it led the people where they were to go. And so the shorter catechism speaks of the glory of God as the chief end of man. That is, it is the thing which man must pursue and which he must follow. And that's really all that we have here. The thing that they were chasing after and following was the glory of God. That's what the Christian life is, beloved. That's what the Christian is seeking and following. He's not so distracted by the cares and the worries of the world and of the wilderness. Not so much so that he fails to see where the glory of God is leading him. I'm not trying to speak in riddles here. We obviously don't look for God in the cloud, nor do we wait for a word from the Lord. But we have his glory revealed to us in scripture, and there we have a sure guide. There we are told where we are to go and how we ought to glorify God. But most important by far was the way, as we have seen, this event, the glory which filled the tabernacle, prefigured the coming of Christ. And more than that, his going. Not just his coming, but his going. For as he was raised, he was glorified in his humanity. And especially as he goes to the Father, what he does is what no high priest ever could. Namely, bear the continual uninterrupted sight of the glory of God. And yet, that is what he does forevermore as a man in the presence of God in the inner sanctum of heaven. As a high priest. Do you understand what I am telling you? What it means for him to appear there on our behalf continually and ever living to intercede for us in the presence of God. Ever bearing the sight of that glory. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 7 verses 25 through 28. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily as those those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. To think of the glory that appears in him, but also the glory that he beholds forever in the presence of the Father. The very glory of the Father. The very glory that appears here in the inner room. He can bear the sight of it continually because it is only a reflection of his own nature, which abides eternally in his own person. But the really amazing thing is not even that. But it's that he has now opened the way for us to come in as well. And to do what even Moses himself could not do. And that is to draw near and to behold the glory of God. And how do we do that? Again, I'm not speaking in riddles here. I'm not speaking in metaphors. How do we behold the glory of God? We do so by faith and not by sight. 
When you read Hebrews chapter 10, and it's, it, it, it tells us to draw near, boldly, into, uh, into the inner room, to the very throne of grace. Keep reading. What it tells us in the very next chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, is the life and the centrality of faith. Faith is the secret to getting in, beloved. It's how you are able to draw near and to behold God's glory now. But do not mistake faith for imagination. The glory we behold by faith is real. It is no less real than the glory which John beheld with his own eyes in the person, the incarnate person of Jesus Christ. And yet, if anything, as John tells us at the end of his gospel, that it is better and it is more blessed to believe, having not seen, And you notice even Paul himself speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when he says that we now, unlike the Israelites, are able to behold the glory of God so that we're being transformed by it. Yes, through a glass. But as we do this, he says two chapters later, we walk by faith, not by sight. We're beholding dimly through a mirror, nevertheless, truly, the glory of God as we walk by faith. With unveiled faces. And we're being transformed. Through a glass, much of it remains hidden, at least to our sight. But nevertheless, let me say again, the experience is real. And it is a constant experience. What am I describing? What is Paul describing? This constant beholding of the glory of God so that we're being changed by it. Well, it is simply the whole of the Christian life, which he says, again, is walking by faith, not by sight. A continual beholding and believing the glory of God. Lived out in obedience to God, following Jesus and walking by faith. That is what Paul is talking about. And this is the great privilege that even Moses could not enjoy, at least not to the extent that we are able to ourselves. Moses was kept at a distance. And yet we are beholding now that Christ has come and has been revealed to us in the pages of the New Testament. Testament, We are beholding things that even he could not comprehend. And we are being sanctified and changed by them all the time. That is what the Christian life is. It is a continual pursuit as well as a continual experience of the glory of God as we walk by faith and not by sight. Who then can question the value of this chapter and this episode as is recounted here? And indeed of the book of Exodus itself, its value in the whole scheme of the Bible, as well as the ministry of Moses. Or he who is greater than Moses, Jesus Christ. And to think we are all caught up in this, experiencing these same things only to a greater degree, the very things that Moses experienced on that day. Oh, that we might realize what blessings flow to us who belong to the new and better covenant and the glories that await us who do not waver in unbelief but hold fast firm to the end of their wilderness experience. The glories of a promised land that awaits us. The glories of heaven itself. The constant, continual, uninterrupted sight of the glory of God. That is the life of heaven. And that is what is promised to a people in the wilderness. The promised rest. And that will far outweigh anything that we as pilgrims suffer for the Lord. Whom we love 
as we live in the wilderness. Do you see the relevance of all of this? The relevance of the book of Exodus as it describes the central concerns of the Christian life as well as the central setting of the Christian life. Here is a word for pilgrims. Here is a word for Christians. Be encouraged and go on in faith until you reach what you are seeking. Amen. And let us respond now to the Lord in praise by standing and singing together hymn number 42.